Grace and peace are yours in Christ, friends. Amen. There's still a war going on in Ukraine. In fact, maybe you weren't aware of this, there are currently six ongoing conflicts worldwide that meet the definition of a major war. That's a conflict that's caused in either this calendar year or the previous at least 10,000 deaths. Those are the war in Ukraine, and then also the Ethiopian civil conflict, the Yemeni civil war, the Afghanistan conflict, the Mexican drug war, and the conflict in Myanmar, which started in 1948 and still meets the definition of a major war. Inflation in the U.S. currently 8.2%. I'm sure everybody's seen that number. Could be worse. We could live in Germany, which is 8.5. In Britain, 13.2. Argentina, nearing 80% and is projected to crack 90 next year. And of course, it's election season, right? So we're all aware that every candidate who's running is planning to destroy America as we know it, according to the campaign of the person running against them. Our world is a mess. We see it in all those big societal ways, such as I just mentioned, but I'm sure you're coming in this morning with your own messes, your personal, individual messes that are just as distressing to you as all those big things. Our world is a mess, our lives are messes often. And as Christians, we have a compelling reason to think about these messes. Because we believe that there's an all-powerful God, a creator God, who holds the universe in his hands. We believe that there's a God who loves us and cares for us, which he proved by sending his son Jesus into our world to give his life on our behalf. So if there is such an all-powerful God in control of it all, and this all-powerful God has proven that he loves all people by giving us such a wondrous and costly gift, why are things in this world left such a mess? Habakkuk asks these questions. Habakkuk turns to the God who created the universe, who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, who promised to send a Messiah Savior through them, and asks, why are things such a mess, God? And that's the right thing to do, because only God can explain to us what we see in our world. So as we continue today in our series on Habakkuk, God will explain what's going on. We're reading today from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of chapter 2. Before we start, I'll remind you of what we read last week. Habakkuk, God's prophet, saw evil in his nation, Judah, God's chosen nation. And Habakkuk wanted God to see this and act, but God told Habakkuk in what we read last week, Habakkuk, I've already seen what you want to show me. Now let me show you something. God revealed to his prophet that he was going to send the nation of Babylon against Judah. The Babylonians were a, a wicked, violent, greedy nation who worshipped their own strength. God tells Habakkuk, though, that he knows this about them and he's going to use them regardless. This is something that troubles Habakkuk. And this gets us into our reading this morning. Habakkuk is troubled by this idea that God would use such people to, pilot, pun, to punish his own chosen nation. And so now we'll read Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 12. I'd I encourage you to have those words before you as we work through them this morning. The prophet says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. 
Habakkuk begins his reply to God's revelation by saying, Look, God, I acknowledge you are above me, above all people. You surpass the creation you've made. You are eternal. You are from everlasting, Habakkuk says, and you are not immortal. You will never die. And the prophet uses God's special covenant name here. If you're reading your Bible, you see that the word Lord is written here in all capital letters. It's a name that sometimes we could also translate as Yahweh or Jehovah. This is the special name that God revealed to Israel. The name that is not just the the creator, almighty God over all creation, but the savior God. This name calls to mind the God who saved Israel from Egypt. Calls to mind the gift that God gave them of a homeland in Canaan. And so when he uses this name in these words, Habakkuk is saying, Lord, you are the savior God. Everything we have is a gift from you. So I accept that you appointed the Babylonians to execute judgment and to punish But he still has questions, and so he goes on. Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? This is the question we want to ask about our messy world, right? Why do you tolerate this God? Why does the immortal and only holy God allow, to name just one problem, war, such as we see all over our world, such as Habakkuk knew he was going to see when the Babylonians would come? Why? Habakkuk continues, and he uses this this interesting metaphor to depict the messy world we live in. He says, God, you have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. There's no fish king who takes it upon himself to protect the sea creatures, right? Habakkuk says, when we look at the world, it looks the same way. There's no ruler protecting people. Notice what Habakkuk is really doing here. He's starting to edge close to almost a challenge to God. God, do you really rule and protect, or do we live in a world like the sea creatures where there is no king ruling and protecting them? Verse 15, Habakkuk continues with this metaphor. The wicked foe pulls all of them, all the sea creatures, up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices, and he is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. The nations of the world here, Habakkuk pictures as fish in the sea, and Babylon is this expert commercial fisherman who's grabbing them up and profiting handsomely from his trade. Then he goes and he worships his tools, the things that he uses to gather up his harvest of fish, to bring them to market, to handsomely profit. He offers sacrifices to these tools, burnt offerings to his nets. It sounds silly, but on this Reformation Sunday, I want to bring out a quote from Martin Luther, who saw that this is a natural tendency of the human heart. He wrote this in his large catechism. Whatever you set your heart upon and put your trust in is your God. We can laugh at the picture of the fisherman here who's offering incense to his net, but when we sacrifice our free time and our relationships for more hours at work, when we sacrifice our money to political campaigns and online pundits, we should ask ourselves, are we looking in a mirror as we read these verses? Are there things in our life which we expect to receive blessings from and so we offer sacrifices to them? Verse 17, 
back into the prophet's words. Is he, the enemy, Babylon, this fisherman, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Here Habakkuk finally puts this question to God. God, are you going to do something? Will you really allow sinners to keep on seeing? I will stand at my watch, Habakkuk now says, and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. Habakkuk's now sort of talking to to us, to his audience. He's been directly addressing God, and now he sort of steps back, and it's, it's almost like a theatrical aside, speaking to himself, speaking to us, saying, all right, I've put my question to God, now I'm going to wait. I'm going to listen for his reply. He's asked God these frank, confrontational questions, right? Comparing God and our world to the sea and saying, God, do you actually care for the people that you've created? Have you left them defenseless against evil? And maybe we would be uncomfortable bringing such words before God, right? Habakkuk is edging close to something that sounds like rejection of God. But those words in verse 1 of chapter 2 show us that there's something different happening here. Habakkuk is not asking these questions because he wants to reject God. Habakkuk wants desperately to hear from God. He trusts God. What he sees in the world, this mess in the world, forces him to ask these questions because he trusts God. Without a creator God in the picture, no human has any reason to wonder why is there evil. If you don't believe that there's a God, then you just have to accept that evil is a part of our world. But when we know that there is a God who made this world and who loves us, then we have to ask, why is there evil? The Spirit of God puts this question on our hearts and sends it forth from our lips. And we know with Habakkuk that only God can explain it by his word. And that's what he now does. Right, Habakkuk 2, verse 2 now. Then the Lord replied. This is what Habakkuk was waiting for. It's what we're waiting for. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God has an answer for Habakkuk. It's an answer specifically about the issue that Habakkuk brings before him. The evil in Judah, the impending Babylonian invasion. That's the appointed time of which God speaks here in these first couple of verses. He says that the end is near, right? And that's the end of the evil in Judah he's talking about. That end is going to come when the Babylonians conquer the kingdom and cart off Habakkuk's people as captives. God's answer, which takes up the rest of chapter 2, it's, it's specific to that event. But as we read this answer, we're going to find truths which speak to our own messy modern world. Habakkuk's book is in the Bible for a reason. All scripture is God-breathed and useful, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. And we're going to learn from this particular prophecy, given at a particular time, truths which illuminate our particular times, our particular lives. So God continues in verse 4. And it's worth noting that this verse, from this somewhat obscure Old Testament book, right? maybe many of you, until we got into the series, had not really been in Habakkuk before. But this obscure Old Testament book in this particular verse, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, is used to underpin some of the most important sections of the New Testament. Verse 4, see the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. The enemy. 
Now, here God is speaking of the Babylonians, but as the New Testament shows, this is a verse that speaks to a broader truth. That's the way the New Testament uses this verse. When we look at New Testament usage of this verse, we see that the enemy we ought to think about in this verse is not only the Babylonians against whom this verse was written, not only any particular national or personal enemy. Our enemy is the sinful heart with which we are born. Jesus describes that natural heart in our gospel reading. He also describes the new heart, the new life, which God gives through the gospel. From that reading, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Who is a a, a good man? When Jesus says this, because as we hear those words, we ought to think about our gospel reading from last week, where Jesus told the rich young man, no one is good except God alone. No person, no man, no woman, no child can be called good on the basis of their actions. Paul says it in our New Testament reading. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. God's law is not a top 10 list of helpful life tips. It is a mandate for perfection. The book of James parallels those verses and says it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So who can be the good man of whom Jesus speaks? Who is the righteous person mentioned by God in Habakkuk 2.4? God explains it. The righteous person will live by faith. God is going to continue by addressing sin and sinners and this messy world. He's going to give Habakkuk the answer Habakkuk is looking for. But first, he's going to make sure that his prophet, he's going to make sure that we are grounded on this truth. The righteous person, the good person, in the eyes of God, is the one who lives by faith. Let me make this clear. You are that person who lives by faith. Faith worked by God through the gospel. You are the ones who live by faith. We shouldn't, as God's chosen ones who live by faith, pretend that we don't sin. The one who lives by faith is free to acknowledge their sin because their faith isn't placed in their own perfection. We place our faith in the sinless Son of God, Jesus our Savior. We were cursed under God's law as lawbreakers, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So therefore, Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 and Galatians to prove this point. No one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. In this messy world, God tells Habakkuk, my righteous ones will show themselves by faith. In this world, the enemy without and within is puffed up and seeks his own glory and honor and status and power. We live different lives. We place our trust in God and do what is good simply because God has said it is good and we believe him, not to earn his favor, Not to win worldly status or wealth. Sometimes living by faith requires us to give up status and wealth. But we who live by faith say, so be it. My God will care for me. Now God goes on and he gives Habakkuk the answer Habakkuk was looking for. What is God going to do about sin and evil in this world? Verse 5. Indeed, wine betrays him, the enemy, the sinner. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, 
He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. And now over the next nine verses, God tells Habakkuk what's going to happen to evildoers. Other evildoers will arise and punish them. That's God's simple answer. In this world of sinners, the only thing that can be done about sin is to have sinners punish sinners. The leaders of Judah who exploited the poor among them will be exploited and plundered by Babylon, who in turn will be plundered by Persia years later, who in turn will be conquered, history shows us, by Alexander the Great's Greek armies, who in turn, after breaking up and being divided among themselves, will be overtaken by the Romans, and so on. Right? You can string all these world conflicts together until you get to today. Right? Ultimately, I could build a, a, a string that takes us from those wars all the way into the six I mentioned at the top of this message. That's human history. We look at human history and we see occasionally humanity producing by itself beauty, right, great art, idealistic treatises, noble laws, but the dominant notes of human history's symphony are war, brutality, violence, and hatred. So here's what God taught Habakkuk, what he teaches us. God has never and will never intend to solve the problem of sin through moral improvement. Not of society, not of the individual. He will punish sin, both societal and individual, through the actions of other sinners. He will curb sin to an extent with the law in an outward way. But that does not solve the problem of sin. Sin will not be solved through law, not the law of God, not earthly laws administered by God's governmental servants. No, God's solution to sin is his son dead on a tree, again from Paul. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone hung on a pole. Only God can explain what's going on in our world to create the mess we see, and here's his explanation. Humans make this mess with our sin. No punishment for sin administered by humans can be truly righteous, for no one is good except God alone. And no law, not even the law which God sent the mountain with, down the mountain with Moses, can solve this problem. The law may serve to curb some forms of sin in this world, but sin will remain and burst forth in rebellion against God to harm other humans, to perpetuate the mess we see. But the righteous person lives by faith. The righteous person trusts like Habakkuk, and turns to God and to his word for an explanation, not to our own guesses and opinions. Turning to anything else for an explanation is foolishness, as God says in verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. Nothing we can fashion with our reason and power can guide us and answer us. Only the God who speaks through scripture can do so. So God concludes his answer to Habakkuk this way. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let all creation listen to what God says and believe it. Let's sum this message up and conclude. Uh, why is this world a mess? Because people are sinners. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Everyone you bump into after you leave church today is a sinner. And we, together, we make this world a mess. What will God do about the mess we make in his world? Well, in this life, this side of eternity, he will use sinners to deal with sinners, but that's not a solution. It won't solve the problem of sin, 
what he's done for that was accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. And it's communicated to you here through the gospel word proclaimed. Your sins are forgiven. You are at peace with God. It's made tangible here when that gospel is connected to elements, water, bread and wine, that you might be assured of that forgiveness. Here, God makes himself present for you, for your forgiveness, for your salvation. So let's hear again God's final words to Habakkuk, a promise to which we can cling. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Here, where God is present in gospel for you, cling to it. Live by faith. Amen.